This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. So I'm so thankful, Josh, that you're here this morning to share with us about what God is doing in your life through you and your church and your family and to share the word with us. So come on down and give us the word. Thank you, Matt, and thank you, Woodland. I'm so glad to be here with you guys. Uh, it's, it's a novel thing for a pastor to get to uh, be at a, a, another church. I don't get to visit other churches very often, and so I'm really grateful to be here. Uh, about 10 years ago, I had uh, a youth ministry go to serve in Honduras. And uh, when they came back, I asked all the teenagers to share uh, what was the thing that impacted you, the, the thing that God did in your life. And this young lady named Ivy stood up, and I'd known that she was sort of discerning a call to ministry in her life and possibly doing some foreign missions. And so uh, I was very eager to hear what she had to say. And, and she took me by surprise uh, with this statement that sort of seared into my mind. She said, I went all the way to Honduras to learn that I could be doing this at home. And that began sort of a, a journey for me in reconciling these two ideas that we, we talk about global missions and we talk about regional and even local missions, but what, what does it mean to experience neighborhood missions? And so that's a little bit what I want to talk about today because I think those things actually um, cascade outward, that, that the, the spiritual life works from the inside out. And so the extent to which we can practice neighborhood missions is actually going to limit or multiply what we can do in those larger areas. I thought kingdom work was something that happens over there with skills I don't have. I am I'm bookish, I'm indoorsy, uh, I don't like to travel. And so missions is not something for me, right? Well, actually, it very much is. And so if you would please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 9, uh, beginning in verse one. I'm reading from the ESV. I'm not sure what you have, but if there's a discrepancy there, bear with us. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him to the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to, his, to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. 
and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we know that all of our flesh and glory are like grass and flowers which fade and fall, but your word flourishes forever. So find us hidden here at the place where the frailty of humanity meets with the fullness of divinity in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and send your spirit to set a table for us, filling the forms to fit our hearts for heaven. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You're welcome to have a seat. There was a time in my life um, when I was a, a late teen and early 20s when a series of movies came out that was a huge deal, The Lord of the Rings. And uh, the, the, the guy who played Frodo is named Elijah Wood. And at the time, he and I looked very similar. And so I constantly got that. Uh, you look just like Elijah Wood or Daniel Radcliffe. It, it was kind of a combo. But I, I really started to take an affinity toward Elijah Wood. And so I was uh, very excited to, to know uh, that his first film was actually done when he was a child. And we're about the same age, so I'm watching this movie. It's called Avalon. Uh, it was written and directed by a man named Barry Levinson. And it was partly based on uh, his upbringing and his family's story. And so it follows uh, the life of a man uh, who is a Hungarian Jew who immigrates to America in 1914. And he's incredibly excited to be a part of this American story, to live this American dream. And his whole extended family comes to America and they, they begin to uh, assimilate to American life. And what's interesting is they keep talking about all of the opportunities that they get to, to participate in and all of the blessings that happen and all of the fruitfulness of their family. But there's a, a, a dirty undertone in the whole film where you start to notice these pictures of not only what they've gained, but what they're starting to lose. And it really centers all around the picture of what happens at tables in this film. You see, at the start, you've got this large extended family, uh, four brothers and all of their kids, and then starting uh, to develop even grandchildren. And they're all uh, meeting together at one house, and they're having a Thanksgiving meal. And because there's so many of them, and they live in such small, like, brownstone um, uh, apartments, they, they have to make tables out of everything everywhere and it covers all of the public spaces of these homes and there are people sitting in the living room uh, yelling at people in the kitchen to pass the salt and they're they're chasing it all the way down the different rows and there's so much life and vitality and it's a little bit annoying but it's really beautiful and, and there's still all the tensions of family life but it is all the family seated at one table sharing a meal together well as the story progresses from 19 
1914 on into the 20th century, uh, amazing things start to happen. Uh, the, the family starts to, to prosper. They move out of their original um, uh, vocations and kind of make their own way. And one of them, well, two of them decide that they're going to uh, open up an electronics store and begin selling things like radios and, uh, and kitchen appliances. And then we get to the television. And everything changes. Because when they bring a television into the, the, the home, what happens is they're, they're now all, they're way too big to all be meeting together. And they've allowed their tensions to split them up. And so now they're, they've moved from extended family to nuclear families. And the nuclear family has to eat really, really quickly. Because you've got to be done in time for whatever the programming is that's coming on at 7 o'clock. And so they're, they're scarfing down their food and then they all move to the living room. Well, by the time you get to the, the, the 80s, they're actually setting up TV trays in front of the television. They're just eating in front of the TV. I think if that movie had continued past the 1990s, they would have seen people eating in their own rooms in front of iPads. There, there seems to be this level of the more we experience our prosperity, the less connection we have around the table, which Barry Levinson, I think, rightly identifies as something being tragic. They move apart from one another, and there's, there's a scene where, where you look past an empty dinner table to the living room where they're lit by the glow and staring at something other than one another. I pray that that would not be for us, but I do think that the table even today is a representation of our posture toward one another. Christine Pohl said, especially in the context of shared meals, the presence of God's kingdom is prefigured, revealed, and reflected. A shared meal is the activity most closely tied to the reality of God's kingdom. That may be counterintuitive to you, but just imagine what God could have meant by saying this, uh, this sacrament, this table is a representation of the goodness of life to you. Do this in remembrance of me. What in the world might that mean for even our dinner tables, our breakfast tables? The table tells I can tell what your posture is, and you can tell what my posture is, toward my neighbors uh, just simply by observing how I participate in table fellowship. How and where and for whom do I set the table? I think the table tells a story about three things in this text that I want to share with you this morning. Uh, it, the table tells a story about savoring refreshment. It tells a story about seeking reconciliation. And it tells a story about serving restoration. So let's dive in here to savoring refreshment. Now, the thing you may not get uh, from, the, from the text is that in the immediate context, this is a pivotal moment in David's life. David has finally established his uh, kingship over Israel, united the, the tribes, brought everyone together, and in chapter 7, he has this great idea. Well, now that I've made the kingdom secure, I'm going to build a temple for God. I'm going to do this great thing, a building project that will establish the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Actually make heaven local in Jerusalem. Now that's a really good instinct, but he totally misses what God's plan is for him. And so God responds through the prophet and says, no, 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 you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And that's a play on words because he's actually talking about establishing a legacy, a house for David. 
for his progeny, moving down in the generations. And God's going to fulfill his covenant to all people through the establishment of that house. And so what's David's role? To rest in God's finished work on his behalf and to let it happen through feasting. And so the very next thing David does, and by the way, David has a very short window uh, of celebration in this, because the next thing that happens after this passage is pretty much Bathsheba. So it's all downhill from there. This is the height of his entire ministry. It's very, very short before he has his midlife crisis and throws it all away. But in that moment, what he does is a, a picture, a figuring, a, you could say, a type of what Christ is and what he does. And so uh, after David gets that message, he says this, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Therefore, if it may please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken and with your blessings shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David realizes that everything he has comes from the Lord and that it's, it's a blessing in order for him to bless. That this is actually his primary kingdom work. See, Sabbath and feasting in scripture are intimately tied together. And we have a habit in America, uh, as we celebrate the, the idols of suburbia, um, to think about things like eating and resting as a break from our work. Like th Those are things we're going to strive and strive and strive, and then when we crash, it's because we need refueling. And that's how we think about ourselves. Uh, the paradigm in our mind is that we are machines that work until they collapse, and then we do maintenance on them. And we defer maintenance as far as possible. But that's not the image that Scripture has for people in the image of God resting and feasting. That's actually what we're designed for. In the beginning, when they're created, he tells them, eat, enjoy the fruit of the garden, the things that I have planted for you. In the end, in the kingdom to come, it's a wedding feast, a celebration. God created Adam and Eve at happy hour on a Friday. Look it up. Do you need any more proof that God loves you? He gave them the biggest mission in, in the, the universe of all time, to be fruitful, multiply, and have dominion over the whole earth. And then what's the very first thing they're supposed to do? Have a Saturday? Take a nap? Feast together. Our work begins in a posture of Sabbath, of rest, of feasting at the table. Peter Lightheart says it this way, For Jesus, feast was not just a metaphor for the kingdom. As Jesus announced the feast of the kingdom, he also brought it into reality through his own feasting. Unlike many theologians, he did not come preaching an ideology, promoting ideals, or teaching moral maxims. He came teaching about the feast in the kingdom, and he came feasting in the kingdom. Jesus did not go around merely talking about eating and drinking. He went around eating and drinking a lot. 
I asked a leadership uh, cohort uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I'm pulling them together and we're talking about being missionaries in everyday life. How do we embody Christ in the everyday? Uh, and, and what I really asked them was, what advice would you give to a foreign missionary who was coming to preach the gospel to Collierville? And they gave me a lot of really good answers. One of the things that I asked them was, what would you tell them to watch out for? What's dangerous in the suburbs? And they gave me a list of those things too. And I said, yeah, those are the suburban gods. Those are the idols we're trying to keep ourselves clean from. And it's really hard for us to do in a way that it wasn't hard for the family in Avalon to do because they were coming to a different culture. And so they could actually see what the cultural idols were. We have grown up here. We don't recognize the difference between between living a good life and bowing down to the idols of this age. And it's, it's a very dangerous thing for us. And so they, they pointed out some of these idols. They said, you know, uh, busyness, success, uh, our, our children, um, safety, security, monetary stability, all of these different things that, that can be goods in and of themselves. But when we make them ultimate, when they're not serving the ends of the kingdom, they actually become God's idols to us. We want them to watch out for those things. And so then I said, well, what would you tell them to build their ministry around in order to combat all of those things? And they looked at me and they were just like, this and what they meant by this was I'd been gathering them all year long for leader development and the vast majority of what we did together was we feasted. We ate together. We talked about what does it mean to set a good table for people, to, to, to provide a place of flourishing for others, to, to savor life. And I'm using that word intentionally because uh, about two weeks ago, I was in Birmingham with some other EPC pastors, uh, and we were uh, sharing a meal together um, as a way of sort of wrapping up a cohort we have been a part of. It was a beautiful restaurant. It was called Chez Fanfan. It was like the most, you know, highbrow, highfalutin. I felt like I didn't belong at all. But the food was spectacular, and everything was wonderful. And toward the end of the meal, we'd been having a great time together, and someone came over and said, are you wine and food critics? I think they were hoping to get, maybe get into the magazine or something. And we just sort of laughed and we said, we're pastors. And her eyes turned into saucers. She was like, what are you doing? Like, like she was scandalized that we were enjoying God's creation. She said, the reason I came over here was because I caught you savoring. Whew, that's huge. That actually is the most uh, like appropriate evangelistic advice I could possibly give you. Get caught savoring. You see, in, in 1 Peter, when, when he talks about evangelizing, it, it's not go to people's doors and, and knock on them and ask them a couple of questions about where they, they're going to go when they die and how they know that they're allowed to be there. That's not the picture that we see in 1 Peter. What we see in 1 Peter is people are knocking on your doors and demanding to know about the hope that lies within you. What would cause them to knock on your door? Well, you've got to actually be living a hopeful life, a, a life that looks like the kingdom, a life that is attractive or, dare I say, provocative. And that life was very provocative. Here's, here's something practically that, that you could do three times a day. All right, if you're used to blessing your meals, I did for years and years and years. The blessing was bless this food to the nourishment of our bodies, right? That's a good prayer. I started adding a phrase that's really changed something for me. 
Lord, would you bless this meal to the nourishment of our bodies and the delight of our senses? That will change a lot for you. Number one, that's harder to pray over a, a microwave burrito, okay? And so it might change some of those habits because that doesn't really delight our senses. It, it wrecks our GI. It's a different kind of thing. What would it look like to have meals that are a delight to our senses that are provocative in such a way that people can go, that's a life I want to imitate. I'd like to have a life like that. It doesn't look like any other life I'm seeing around here. That would be the beginning of evangelism for us. David, now he had a lot of resources, but he was using them to live a life that looked a lot like the kingdom. Here's the second thing that happens at these tables. Uh, you can just stop there, um, and that's sort of the life of an Epicurean. Uh, that's, that's an Ecclesiastes life. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, right? Um, that's not the gospel. But it is a, a condition of the gospel. Remember, Christ left the heavenly realms and came to us. So we need to have a good idea of what he left before we understand where he went. But it is important to know not only where he went, but why. Seeking reconciliation. So let's pick up the text here. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, he says, And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. David is seeking out the least likely person. You may miss the Middle Eastern politics on this, but the last thing you want to do if you're establishing a new legacy, a new dynasty, is to uh, give any safe harbor to the, the, a person with a legitimate claim on the previous dynasty's throne. And that's exactly what Mephibosheth has. In fact, the, the reason Mephibosheth is uh, lame is because the day his father and grandfather died in battle, his nurse in a panic, took him up and ran for the hills because she knew that he's enemy number one if there's a new dynasty being set. And she accidentally dropped him in her haste and he, he was never able to walk again. And so he was crippled and he was hiding in exile. And now David is saying, uh, I'm looking for the guy that I'm supposed to be killing. And everyone's like, oh, we know what's about to go down here. We know what happens in every version of this story we've ever heard. But he goes out, he brings Mephibosheth, and he does something entirely different with him. He's the greatest threat. Now, maybe Mephibosheth can't lead an army, but somebody else can in his name. Oh, remember the good old days when Saul was in charge? He was so impressive, so handsome. And David, David's blown it. That actually does happen in this story. He gives safe harbor to someone who actually does give him a lot of trouble later on. I wish I could say this is the end of the story, but it's not. There's a lot of tension in this relationship later on in the text. It gets used against him. And it's a lot like what happens with Jesus as well. You remember Jesus uh, brings up the psalm and talks about how uh, the, the one that he shares his bread with will be the one who betrays him. We talk about that, that the word we translate to that is companion. Well, that comes from two words, come, meaning together, and pan, meaning bread. Panera bread, right? Just down the street. That, that's where that comes from. And so it's the people you share bread with are your companions. And you've got to be careful who you let in. 
You got to have safe boundaries. You got to make sure that there is security. But a person in David's position has a higher uh, responsibility than his own security. He recognizes that as a king, he is a royal representative of the throne in heaven. He has a responsibility to do things that look like what God does with his table. And so he welcomes in someone who is a huge liability to him. And after all, David, we know David gets this because what does he say in Psalm 23? You've prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Well, if I'm the king, I get to decide who I'm around. So I've got to bring the enemies in. Love your neighbor is more than just the people you share a fence with, but it's certainly not less. What does it mean for us to love our neighbors? Well, for one thing, that's a huge liability. It's a major risk because if you let your neighbors into your life, first of all, they could be nosy. The proximity is really tough, okay? Second, if it goes south, it's really hard to get away from them, especially in this market, right? And that's why HOAs have something called a covenant. They recognize that like these are, these are hard responsibilities that we have toward one another if we're going to live in proximity with one another. And so what does it mean for us to, well, first of all, if you're going to love your neighbors, you have to know them. Now, I've got neighbors where, especially the kids in our neighborhood, uh, if I open my back door, it's like there's a portal to my, to my uh, pantry door. Like, it's an immediate, they come in the back door and open my pantry door. They're eating me out of house and home. They're, they're a huge liability. They're filthy. They're all over the place. I'm actually, you can't tell because I'm up here like animated and speaking loudly, but I'm an introvert and I don't want you messing with my stuff. I have a quiet place in my house and I'd like for it to be my whole house, but I, God led me to have children and to be in a neighborhood and that's just, that's what we're doing. And so it's sort of an open house and there's people everywhere and it's total chaos. It's difficult, but it's also beautiful. Luke 14, verse 13, Jesus says, But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And that guy was thinking about later. But Jesus is thinking about right now. When you feast... The tithe in the Old Testament, uh, we usually think about it in monetary terms because that's how we do it. We just have like a direct deposit or we write a check or something like that. And, and it's totally just, it's money. But the tithe wasn't money in the Old Testament. It was stuff. And you know what the stuff was? It was feasting stuff. And what they were supposed to do with the tithe was not just drop it off at the temple and then get lost. They consecrated it at the temple. Then they brought it back home and they threw a feast for everybody, not just for their family, their extended family, their employees, their neighbors, and any foreigners who might be in their midst. It was massive, it was costly. If you've ever thrown a wedding before, it was like that three times a year. You'd have to save up, I mean, that, that would cost like 10% of your entire income to be able to pull something like that off. Yeah, that's kind of the point. And when you throw those feasts, make sure that you're seeking people out who other people wouldn't invite. Because typically we invite people who can then invite us for something and we reciprocate. If you're my age and you have friends, you know that friendship is really just swapping the same 20 bucks on Venmo every other week. 
That's just, that's all we do, right? It, the same thing was true in antiquity. It's just true of humans. We want a little bit of, of reciprocation in our relationships. Jesus said, that's not what your table for. Your table is for largesse. You are blessed to be a blessing to others. Be careful who you decide to let in. And it probably won't be the people you were thinking of letting in. When we've got conflicts in our neighborhood, which we do because we have relationships in our neighborhood, and so you're going to have conflicts, those things get resolved at a table. Well, sometimes it's a Frida's table over margaritas. Sometimes it's the intimacy of a coffee table in our home. We don't know what the table is going to be, but we know that our fellowship is going to happen at a table. Our reconciliation is going to happen at a table, and it's going to require the person who probably is not the one who's the, the most at fault to reach out, to seek reconciliation. So here's a question for you. How many extra chairs do you have at your table? How many seats do you have at your table? That's how much ministry you're willing to do. We've had to like put in folding tables and folding chairs in our living room, which again, I hate because that's my library room. It's beautiful. It has magnificent sofas and leather bound volumes and no TV. It is the best room in the whole house, but it's also the biggest room in the house, which means that we've got to move sofas out and put up tables and chairs if we want more space for people, if we want to make room for others to participate in this big life that we're living together if we're gonna do ministry in our own home. Making room is about time and space. It's almost impossible, but it's a part of the tithe. Here's the last bit. Our tables, the story they tell, is ultimately about serving the restoration. David said to him, do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, with whom he had made covenant. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. David didn't just pardon Mephibosheth. You have to understand, we're so individualized that we don't understand, well, it wasn't Mephibosheth's fault. Politically, yes, it is. Because he's implicated in the sins of his house. He's a part of a line. He, his, his grandfather was a federal head, which meant just like us when Adam was our federal head, his sin was visited upon us. And it's ours. We own it now. The same thing is true of Mephibosheth. Now, it would have been mercy enough to pardon Mephibosheth. You are pardoned. And the king can do that. But he didn't do that. He treated him as royalty. He could have said, you are pardoned, go away, nobody's going to harm you. But he actually brought him in. He restored something that was lost by giving him his dignity. You are a, you're a royal child, and so I'm going to treat you like a royal child. You may have lost that in the eyes of the world, but you didn't lose it in the eye of the kingdom. You are made in the image of the King Almighty. You are sons and daughters of royalty. And I'm going to treat you that way. Mephibosheth should have been king, but instead he was a crippled nobody. David gave him back his birthright. That's grace. And it's what Jesus commanded us to do. When, when he came to the, the table at the Last Supper with his disciples and he pulled them in, even with someone who was a massive liability, and if we're honest, they all were. One of them betrayed him in a, a, a cosmic way. 
But they all betrayed him in one way or another, even that very night as they abandoned him. And Jesus knowing that, but also knowing this, that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to him, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. In the first century, it was possible in the church that uh, a master and a slave from the same household would belong to the same church. And maybe the, the servant got up earlier than everybody else and had to get the whole household ready in order to be able to go to church. And he's making sure their tunics are set and he's washing everything and he's lining it all up so that they can all get out the door and get to church. But then once they get to church, maybe the servant, the slave, is an elder at that church. And, and things have flat, flipped radically on their heads. Except that in the kingdom that he represents as an elder, the greatest are the least, and so he ends up serving there too. But the difference is, there he becomes a picture of the king. Because the greatest serve the least in this kingdom. Which also transforms his everyday life as a slave. And his master can't forget it. Maybe I should be the one serving. It's sort of, it has like this, it's, it's a mind-blowing kind of reversal. It breaks the economy when the least serve the greatest. Feasting like kings in the image of the one true king will often mean forsaking southern hospitality for Christian hospitality. You know the difference between that, right? Southern hospitality says everything needs to be beautiful so I can impress you. Christian hospitality says I want to impress upon you the graciousness of God, which means Southern hospitality sometimes means leaving some laundry on the, the couch when people come over so they feel a little more at ease with you. That's important. It's not always about everything being nice and shiny and perfect for them. It's about making a place that they can enter and feel welcome, like they belong and they matter, like they have dignity, which you are restoring to them because of course they do have that in the eyes of the kingdom. All of our facades will be stripped away and we'll see ourselves not as the most benevolent hosts in the neighborhood, but as the first among beggars. And here's a fact. Some of your guests will be unrefined. Some of them, some of their manners will be incredibly undignified because they lost their birthright and they've been trained in other things. But our mission remains the same. Edith Schaefer once said, if you let people into your house, they will steal your silver and throw up on your Persian rug. Do it anyway. That's the cost. That's the vision of the kingdom that we're setting. There's a man named uh, Tony Campolo who was telling a story about uh, doing some work in Honolulu. And the, the time difference was so dramatic, he was so jet-lagged, he found himself in a Waffle House at 3.30 a.m. in downtown Honolulu. And that's around the time that all of the prostitutes got off of their shifts and gathered at that Waffle House. And it was, he felt incredibly uncomfortable. Here is a, a, a minister of the gospel, and he is surrounded by the greasy spoon uh, trappings of the seedy underbelly of Honolulu. And he overhears one of the girls telling another, tomorrow is my 39th birthday. And the other said to her, who cares? And she was like, gosh, you don't have to be mean. I was just, I don't expect anything. I, I just thought someone should know. So they all leave and Tony looks at the chef and he says, are they here every night? And he says, 
Yeah, every night. He says, would it be okay if I threw a birthday party for that one girl? He was like, Agnes? Absolutely. She would love that. Can I make the cake? And so the next night, they pulled it all together. And Agnes walks in to a birthday party in her honor. First time in her life. And she's, she's so overwhelmed. She looks at the cake and, and they're all like, hey, cut the cake. We're hungry. And she says, can, can I take this home and just cherish it for a little while? I'll be right back. And so she went, and when she went to go drop off the cake, Tony said, hey, listen, this might be a little bit weird, but do you guys mind if I pray for her while she's gone? And they're, they're like, I, I mean, he paid for the party, okay. So he prays, uh, and when he's done, the, the owner of the establishment looks at him and he goes, I didn't realize you were a religious fellow. What, what kind of church are you a part of? Tony thought for a minute and he said, the kind of church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes. Well, the chef said, there's no such thing as a church like that. If there was, I would join. I'd be a part of that. Tony understood that the kingdom is a party, a party that God is throwing. He's laying out the most extravagant fare, and we get to participate in that. And if we don't savor this world and all of the gifts that he's given us, then, then we don't know what it's like to give those things away. We're receiving grace, and then we're giving grace away. Your mission statement is on the front of your bulletin. Maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. I don't know of a better place to mature people, all kinds of people, than at the table. It's where we learn how to interact with one another. It's where we learn what manners are appropriate. Manners don't uh, don't actually change our hearts, but they are the form of dignity. And so we pray to the Spirit, would you fill these forms to fit our hearts for eternity, for heaven? The reason God said, no, David, you're not going to build this temple is because he knew something about the true nature of where heaven is. Heaven is local. Everywhere there's a table. Everywhere there's a table, there's an opportunity. Our stories can be this story. And if you don't believe me, when we read this text, we read a lot of Hebrew words that were very foreign to us, didn't we? But there's actually translations for each of those that help us tell that story in a way that we can actually inhabit. The name David means beloved. The name Mephibosheth means the mouth of shame. Saul means impressive. Makir, the, the, the place he went, means sold. Amiel means people of God. Lo Debar means no pasture. Jerusalem means city of peace. And Jonathan means gift of God. So if we were to take all of those and put them back into this story, we could retell it maybe like this. And it might sound a little bit like the gospel to us, but I hope it also sounds like our everyday life. The beloved king seeks out the shamed and the shattered. From a once impressive but now defeated house, sold from the people of God into a land of desolation. And he welcomes him into his home in the city of peace and restores him as a prince of the realm, seated at the table with his other sons, all for the sake of God's precious gift. That's something you can do on a Thursday evening in East Memphis. The mission is here and now. Your tables tell the story. They won't do it perfectly. It'll be messy, but that's part of it. It's part of the beauty of it. 
I'll close with this from Tim Chester in his book, A Meal with Jesus. He says, our life at the table, no matter how mundane, is sacramental, a means through which we encounter the mystery of God. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.